everybody. Welcome to episode three of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists for dermatologists and for the dermatologically curious. My name is Luke Johnson. I am one of your hosts. I am an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I have special training in pediatric dermatology, and I also see adults. And with me, of course, is... <laughs> Michelle Tarvox. I am a dermatologist and dermatopathologist and assistant professor at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. So we started Dermosphere in order to keep people updated on the latest developments in our field because I found that I didn't have time to read everything that was going on. And I just wanted a podcast that would do all the heavy lifting for me. Um, so we made one. We've, we go over several articles in each episode, usually a half a dozen or so, and we make an effort to pick those that are especially clinically relevant. So we've got six good ones today. Of course, every time we do this podcast, they're good ones. We're talking a lot <laughs> about sunscreens today and some other stuff. So we'll talk about sunscreens, the good, the bad, the absorbed into your bloodstream. And I'm going to get started with an article from the British Journal of Dermatology in June 2019 about sunscreen and vitamin D status. So this was a large international working group. The first author is T. Passeron, and the senior author is A.R. Young. And this is quite an international group, including people from France, Belgium, Senegal, the UK, the US, Brazil, Germany, and Australia. And the title is Sunscreen Photoprotection and Vitamin D Status. So this international group of experts, the article states that they are experts in such diverse fields as endocrinology, dermatology, photobiology, epidemiology, and biological anthropology. I'm not entirely oh. sure I even know what that means. Uh, but <laughs> all these folks reviewed the literature for vitamin D and sunscreen. And the upshot is that sunscreen doesn't seem to affect your levels of vitamin D. So they... There were some articles that looked at sort of optimal sunscreen use, the way it's intended to be used, and found that it didn't seem to impact vitamin D levels. There were also a study or two that they found that looked at real-world use. Basically, they just handed people a bottle of sunscreen before their vacation, and they put on way less than they are supposed to, just like we think they do. Uh, but still, their sunscreen or their vitamin D levels were fine. Um, so their conclusion is that normal sunscreen use, even under real-world conditions, does, does not impact vitamin D levels. Screen and, and repletion perhaps warranted in high-risk groups, like people with photosensitive dermatoses, people in institutions, those sorts of folks. I think that's a really good article to have in the dermosphere right now, because there was also an article that came out recently that seemed a little bit... Um, as if the person who was writing it maybe had a viewpoint in mind before they started their research, but it was entitled, Is Sunscreen the New Margarine? And was talking about um, if sun exposure guidelines were not healthy. Hmm. So we're going to talk more about sunscreen, the good, the bad, and the absorbed into your bloodstream. But I want to complete talking about the good first. Uh, got a few other things out of this article that I thought were useful. Kind of a nice overview of vitamin D. Most of human vitamin D comes from ultraviolet radiation type B. Doesn't come from your diet. That's only about 30% of your vitamin D for most people. Sunlight is only 5% UVB. Most of it's UVA, as I learned in residency, but mostly forgot, probably because it's not a super useful piece of knowledge. But there you have it. Um, vitamin D synthesis increases linearly with exposure to UVB over a period of 30 minutes. If you do find somebody who's deficient, and deficiency under most experts is defined as less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. That's how we measure it in this country anyway. That's 15 nanomoles per liter in other countries. Um, they recommend substituting with 600 to 800 IU per day, unless it's a baby, then 400 IUs. They do comment that little is known about the minimal UVB dose and exposed body surface area requirements to maintain optimal vitamin D status. So maybe you just need to stick your hand out the window for a few minutes a day to get as much vitamin D as you want. 
There's one thing that I always like to bring forward when we talk about UVB and vitamin D, and that is that sometimes people are tanning in tanning salons, and they'll tell you that they're doing that to improve their vitamin D levels. But most vitamin D is, as we talked about, generated by UVB radiation, and most tanning salons use UVA rays because those don't tend to burn their clients, and an unburned client is more likely to come back to you. So there's kind of two sides of the mouth getting talked out of with that particular line of logic. It's a good point. More, more ammunition against the tanning beds. <laughs> they did find a couple studies that tried to figure out how much sunlight you needed on a particular amount of your body in order to get vitamin D. So they found that serum vitamin D can be increased with repeated subarethemal UVR radiation, and doses can be as low as four exposures of 0.375 of the subarethemal dose over 24% of your body surface area. So 24% of my body surface. So I guess I can just wear shorts um, and get four <laughs> exposures of 0.375 SED, and maybe that'll be good enough. Um, they also commented that maybe one reason that sunscreen doesn't seem to affect your vitamin D levels that much is the lower your baseline vitamin D level, the greater your response to your, the ultraviolet radiation. So the body seems to have some kind of mechanism to ensure that your vitamin D levels try to stay as close to optimal as possible. This study was funded by the L'Oreal Company, and anytime there's that kind of conflict of interest, I'm a little bit suspicious, but this study came to conclusions that I agree with, so I'll forgive them for that. I always <laughs> like studies that confirm my existing beliefs so I don't actually have to change either my mindset or my practice. Um, and they also commented that the role of vitamin D in the prevention of non-skeletal diseases remains highly controversial. So vitamin D is a little bit of a hot topic. It doesn't seem to be as so much now as it was a couple years ago, but there's still a bunch of people out there who wonder about their vitamin D levels. And some of them say, well, I shouldn't use sunscreen because it'll impact my vitamin D levels. Well, now you can tell them, not so. And vitamin or and sunscreen, as we know, is important. And they do quote some trials in Australia that showed that sunscreen has protective effects against photoaging, melanoma, squamous cell carcinoma, but not basal cell carcinoma. Hmm. Isn't that wacky? There's so much we don't understand still. Mm -hmm. That's weird. With vitamin D levels too, I think a lot of uh, the levels of synthesis are genetically determined. And, you know, sometimes I think that uh, you have to sort of treat the person as an individual. I know it's a novel concept, um, but being one of the most, I think, aggressively photoprotected human beings that walks the face of the earth, I have absolutely normal vitamin D levels and my husband's are deficient and he plays golf several times a week and has an annoying tan, in my opinion. So, <laughs> who knows? Interesting. That's a good point. Um, but that's what I got for this article. So that's uh, good news about sunscreen. Doesn't affect vitamin D. Keep up the sunscreen. Until you well, maybe hear about sun... the next article. <laughs> speaking of sunscreen, um, I've got an article here with the sort of impact heard around the world of the effect of sunscreen application under maximal use conditions on plasma concentration of sunscreen active ingredients as a randomized clinical trial. And for something with such a scientific kind of dry sounding name, there's actually a little intrigue in the background of this article. So sunscreens in the United States are regulated as an over-the-counter drug and not as a cosmetic as they are in other countries. And studies as early as 1997 and then again in 2008 demonstrated systemic absorption of sunscreen ingredients. Also, oxybenzone along with some other active ingredients like octocrylene have been found in human breast milk in 2010 that was reported. And oxybenzone has been detected in amniotic fluid, urine, and blood. Further studies have raised questions about whether it's able to affect endocrine activity or not. So in 2014, Congress did a couple of things and the FDA did a couple of things. Congress passed the Sunscreen Innovation Act to help expedite entry of sunscreens available worldwide into the United States through an alternative FDA process while maintaining standards of drug evaluation. In the same year, a public advisory panel convened by the FDA concluded that insufficient evidence existed to confirm the safety of many sunscreen ingredients and formulations that were being sold in the United States. So in 2016, they published the guidance titled Guidance for Industry. Notice that little, little bit of tone there, Guidance for Industry, Non-Prescription Sunscreen Drug Product Safety and Effectiveness Data. This was in November of 2016. 
and recommended an assessment of the human systemic absorption of sunscreen ingredients with a maximal usage trial, such as the one we're about to discuss. Also, yeah. I was just going to say, this is great sunscreen history 101. This should be yeah. worth CME. Right, I feel like. I mean, it's kind of interesting. So they recommended that maximal usage trial. They also recommended non-clinical safety assessment, including dermal carcinogen carcinogenicity and embryo-fetal toxicity, and made a remark that these studies could be waived if the results of an adequately conducted human pharmacokinetic maximal use tri trial showed a steady state blood level of less than 0.5 nanograms per milliliter and an adequately conducted toxicology assessment didn't reveal any potential safety concerns. So despite multiple efforts by the FDA to persuade sunscreen manufacturers to conduct key safety studies such as the ones described, the manufacturers did not produce this data. So, so I wonder the FDA, how the FDA tried to persuade them. Like, I'll be I, your best friend. Come on. They offered them gift cards to massage envy. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but apparently persuasive efforts were undertaken and ignored. And so the FDA said, fine, if you aren't going to do this, then we will. And that's and, where this study comes from. And thus this story was born. So why did they pick 0.5 nanograms per milliliter? So that has been defined as the threshold of toxicological concern, and this is thought to be the highest plasma, this, get, this gets complicated, but it's the highest plasma level below which the carcinogenic risk of an, any unknown compound would be less than one in 100,000 after a single use. So in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas, where I live, if you count the college population, we have about 300,000 people. And so they want something that if you have a level of exposure to this chemical or whatever ingredient that less than three people in our city of 300,000 would have any kind of risk after a single use. And so that's that threshold that they set. Um, so with that in mind, the FDA decided to undertake a study of four different chemical sunscreen ingredients, avobenzone, oxybenzone, octocrylene, and acamisole. And it's important to note that acamisole is marketed under something called a new drug application which is not part of the over-the-counter monograph for other chemical sunscreens because it entered by that alternate process. So they did a randomized clinical trial with phase one clinical pharmacology unit in the United States and recruited 24 healthy volunteers between July and August of 2018. They were fairly representative. There were eight, they were between 18 and 60 years old with a normal body mass index. About half of them were women and 14 of them were patients that were African-American with darker colored skin. So these are people with a normal body mass index. Does that mean this is generalizable or not to our general population? <laughs> I, I think they wanted to decomplicate the pharmacokinetic studies. But I agree that, you know, there is there is Texas sized is a, is a phrase we use for a reason here in, in Texas. But um, so we had this nice, healthy patient population that were then randomized to one of four sunscreens. Each group had six participants and each of those were either three men or three women. Uh, and three women, sorry. So they were, both sexes were represented with each different formulation. There were two different sprays, a lotion and a cream. And then this gets really kind of fun when you think about it. Um, the patients had the, the, if you really delve into the study, they had a pre-weighed amount that had been calculated to achieve the proper dose of two milligrams of sunscreen per one centimeter squared to 75% of their body surface area, which was applied four times a day by a qualified study team member. So there was a sunscreen applier as a part of this trial. Uh, the interesting thing to me as well is that they were applying it under the conditions that a person would use it potentially for a day at the beach. And they applied it with the rigor a dermatologist would apply sunscreen. So they sort of put sunscreen on these people's skin with the sort of ardor that a, that a dermatologist would use, the amount of sunscreen a dermatologist would use. But circumstances probably most dermatologists wouldn't put themselves under all day at the beach with only a swimsuit on. So, Fair, yeah, is, but yeah. this is the sort of uh, application we recommend that people use. Exactly, and this is intended to be a maximal use trial. So um, they, it is important to note that this was all done indoors, so no direct sunlight was encountered during the study by the patients. Yeah, I saw that they could spend up to seven days just in this clinic building. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sounds like vacation to me. Um, so during this study, they then collected 30 blood samples over seven days from each participant. Um, having done blood draws myself for patients getting PRP, I don't know how they found enough entry points to get those, you know, sequential blood draws over those seven days because people's veins get a little bit tired of that. So. Probably placed a central line. That would be, that'd be an interesting way to do it. Uh, so their primary outcome for the study was maximum plasma concentration of avobenzone. And their secondary outcomes were the maximum plasma, con plasma concentrations of oxybenzone, octicrylene, and acamusol. 23 of the 24 participants completed the trial. One dropped up because of adverse re response due to a rash. And the kind of meat of the article is that systemic concentrations uh, greater than that threshold of 0.5 nanograms per milliliter were reached for all four products after four applications on day one. So every single one of the ingredients that was studied surpassed that threshold that was set by the FDA that they were worried about that toxicological threshold of toxicological concern was surpassed by all four ingredients on day one. And the concentration increased from day one to day four, suggesting the possibility of drug accumulation. Yeah, that, it looks like it was orders of magnitude greater than this 0 0.5. Quite significantly greater than that 0 0.5, in fact. Um, the avobenzone geometric medium uh, maximum plasma concentration was lowest for the cream version of the application and higher with the sprays and the lotion. Um, and then the cream was the only product that contained a camisole. The um, levels of the plasma levels that were reached were, you know, all, all higher as well for a camisole than that 0 0.5 nanograms per milliliter. And the highest oxybenzone got was almost 210. That's a lot higher than 0 0.5. Significantly higher. Yeah, so there was demonstration of systemic absorption well above the FDA guideline. Now, that does not mean these ingredients are unsafe, but it does sort of trigger a next set of steps. And it does raise some questions about the safety of sunscreen. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> well, and, you know, really, if you get down to the nut and bolts of it, this study was done by the FDA because the FDA couldn't get the manufacturer of these sunscreens to do these studies on their own. So I think in a relatively intelligent way, they said, fine, we need to demonstrate whether or not uh, topical application of these sunscreen ingredients leads to systemic absorption at a level high enough for us to force you to give us more studies, which is kind of what's happened at this point. So the systemic uh, absorption of sunscreen does exceed that threshold, which indicates the need for further studies to determine the clinical significance of the findings. Again, that does not mean that people should not use sunscreen. You know, sunscreen is an important part of our sun protection repertoire. And it's important to remember that skin cancer is the most common malignancy in the United States. The follow-up article in the publication mentioned that in the United States, more than 3.3 million individuals each year are affected by, by skin cancer. And that most of these sunscreens have been used for years without any significant incident of, of events. The other kind of consequences of this are that in November 2019, there's a deadline by which the FDA has asked the sunscreen manufacturers to produce some of the research to help determine whether there's carcinogenic and embryological risk from these higher levels of plasma absorption of chemical sunscreens. That doesn't mean they'll necessarily all be taken off the shelves at that point. The deadline could be extended if the manufacturers commit to undertake the needed studies. But I think they are sort of trying to force the hands of the companies producing these topical products that we now know are absorbed in the blood at a level higher than what they would consider would be safe. So there is a new proposed rule for 2019 with a sunscreen monograph that will apply the generally regarded as safe and effective designation only to zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, two other sunscreens previously used, paraminobenzoic acid and trolamine salicylate, have been designated as not generally regarded as safe and effective. And then 12 ingredients, including avobenzone, oxybenzone, and oxycrylene, three of the four that were studied, will receive insufficient evidence of generally, generally regarded as safe and effective, which means that further testing is required. So can something be given the category of generally unsafe and ineffective? Kind, I mean, you know, when, it, when they give that designation of not generally regarded as safe and effective, that means they have enough data to say that these probably shouldn't be used um, commonly in the public anymore. The uh, challenge to this, of course, is that chemical sunscreens are part of our sunscreen you know, industry for a reason. Mineral sunscreens are not as effective at protecting against UVA radiation.
especially in, in concentrations that don't turn you into a chalk monster. Um, so if you use them at high enough concentrations to really help with UVA, it's not as big of a problem for somebody who is type 1 skin or type 2 skin, but when you get into more darkly pigmented skin types, it gives this kind of purple-silver tinge to the skin, which can kind of be pretty, but you know, most people aren't going for that look. Um, so it causes noticeable whitening of the skin. There is some interesting research also actually talking about zinc absorption into the skin. Uh, small amounts of zinc and zinc oxide particles uh, were actually studied uh, in an in a article published in 2010 in toxicological science, where they found that small, small amounts of an isotope of zinc when applied to the skin and sunscreen were absorbed. They didn't find that it was a very significant threshold that was hit. Um, and, you know, zinc is a normal component of our blood, so it's not necessarily a worrisome thing, but even, you know, the saintly zinc oxide can potentially absorb into the bloodstream. So anything you put on your skin can get into your body. And, you know, I think that one of the interesting things about this article is basically that this is now forcing the conversation of what is the next step and how do we demonstrate the safety of these ingredients that are so commonly used. What's the next step from sort of an industry society standpoint? So what's the next step for me, for my patient who comes into my office saying, what kind of sunscreen should I use? Up until I read this article, I would say, uh, my favorite sunscreen is the one that you'll put on. I didn't think it really mattered that much. A number of my colleagues like to represent zinc and titanium over the chemical ones, but I didn't really think there was a lot of evidence one way or the other. But I don't know. After this, especially in the pediatric population, I think I'm going to maybe lean more toward the zinc and titanium, especially here in Utah where most of our population is phototypes 1 and 2. Yeah, the zinc and titanium are probably the safest bets at the moment. That's not to say that chemical sunscreens are necessarily bad. Um, oxybenzone and octocrylene are the ones that are the, that are the noisiest in terms of endocrine disruption. So if you're really concerned about application in a child, I think staying away from those for that particular patient population because of that higher body surface area to internal volume ratio might be reasonable. Um, you know, I think also there will be discussion about nano, nanoparticles versus what micronized means and what the differences between those things are and how well that affects absorption. Uh, you know, micronized um, just basically means they took large particles and ground them into smaller ones. Nanoparticles are less than, you know, 100 nanometers. So they're less than one micron. They're very, very small. There was an article in the JID in February of this year where they did a study with zinc oxide nanoparticles and found that they mostly just stuck around in the stratum corneum, and if they penetrated the epidermis at all, it was mostly as zinc ions that were, as you mentioned, a normal part of our systemic circulation anyway. So zinc article, zinc oxide nanoparticles, maybe they're the way to go, but I don't see zinc oxide nanoparticles on the ingredient label of my sunscreen, so <laughs> it might be a little challenging to actually find those in practice. <laughs> I know, and sometimes they will talk about like micronized zinc on the label of the sunscreen. But, you know, I think that the way to talk to patients about this is, is basically just that, you know, we don't have any evidence that these sunscreens are dangerous. What we do know is that the FDA for the safety of the population set a level above which any absorption of sunscreens into the blood needed further study. And this article found that these sunscreens are absorbed to a level that we need to study more. It doesn't mean that they're dangerous. It just means we need to do more work on them. Maybe they're just protecting your blood from being sunburned. <laughs> I actually wondered while I was reading this, if somebody had been using a lot of one of the sunscreens that, that absorbed a lot, if it would affect something like photophoresis. <laughs> if it would have any effect. Interesting question. Well... I mean, I don't like that sunscreens gets absorbed into your blood for a couple reasons. I don't like the idea of sunscreens being in my blood. And also, I've always been a kind of under this impression that stuff we put on the skin mostly just stays there. So if sunscreens get absorbed into your systemic circulation, then what else are we putting on people's skin that's getting absorbed into their systemic circulation? Because we put all kinds of stuff on people's skin. Steroids, I mean, I'm constantly trying to talk people down about their concerns about steroids. You know, it's just on the skin, it'll be fine, but probably some of it gets into your blood. Um, antifungals, antibiotics, all kinds of other stuff. Part of me has always wondered if the reason wet wraps are so effective is because they release a fair amount of stuff into your systemic circulation. So maybe it's like taking a little bit of prednisone. 
I mean, we know some things absorb, some things are made to absorb, like testosterone creams are, you know, made to absorb across the skin barrier. I think that, you know, an important thing also to emphasize is that while these levels of absorption are higher by a lot than the level that was, you know, thought to be a threshold that wouldn't need to be worried about, there's still very, very small blood concentrations. It's not as if the levels of, of blood concentration you would get from ingesting something, you know, and, and of course there have been accidental ingestions of all of these sunscreen agents and, and there haven't been reported adverse effects other than GI normal like side effects from ingesting a topically intended product. So, you know, I think that there's still some information that needs to be gathered, but the, you know, mist going forward is still that, you know, sunscreen use is a part of a normal, rational sun protection strategy, which would include sun protective clothing, avoiding the sun during the peak hours, and not spending all day at the beach <laughs> in a swimsuit. Um, I think that, that we still can rationally protect people from the sun. Well, it's a good article and uh, kind of a bit of a wake-up call, and I expect our patients might bring this up too. I think the lay press has gotten a hold of this one to some degree, and it'll be nice to see what happens next, I guess. And let's make sure we give credit to some of the authors. Um, first, uh, first author is Morali Mata, and the senior author is David G. Strauss. Yeah, and that was a preliminary communication in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Yeah, I, I know we spent a lot of time on that article, but it's probably the most important one we're going over this time. Um, so let's move on. Time for something completely different. <laughs> How about psoriasis and obesity? So this is an article out of the JID, the Journal of Investigative Dermatology. Um, the first author here is Kotaro Ogawa, and the senior author is Yuki Nori Okada. Uh, this was out of Osaka University in Japan, as you may have guessed, um, also from the University of Michigan. And this is, it's, there's a ton of statistics in this article that I do not understand. And I tried to understand them a little bit, and then I felt something leaking out of my ears, decided it was probably gray matter, stopped trying to understand them, and figured I'd just explain what I at least can figure out. So the title is a trans-ethnic Mendelian randomization study identifies causality of obesity on risk of psoriasis. So basically what they have here is a bunch of GWAS data, the genome-wide association studies, lots and lots of that data, and they were somehow able to use it to show that obesity has a causative effect on psoriasis. So it's not just an association anymore, now it's a causation, which is an important step. Um, a bit of the statistic they did. So they refer to something called Mendelian randomization, or MR, and they describe it as an approach to infer causal inference between phenotypes using GWAS results. And they say it does a good job of that, and I guess I'm just supposed to take their word for it. They also note that different anecdotal methods in robustly infer causality, such as MR Egger, whatever that is. Um, but they say that this Mendelian randomization thing is now one of the best approaches to infer causality. And here, they used it to infer causal in inference on psoriasis. So their GWAS data was from mostly European controls, 13,000 cases, 21,000 controls, and a little bit of Japanese folks, uh, 282 cases and 420 controls. In case you wonder if your data was included in this, they did point out that they did not use GWAS information from 23andMe uh, because that company has some policies about data sharing. But there are a bunch of other GWAS um, databases, I guess, that they could access. And they looked at clinical parameters such as obesity, triglycerides, cholesterol, blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, and blood pressure. And after crunching numbers, they found that for Europeans, significant causality of genetically increased BMI on risk of psoriasis. And the same thing was true for Japanese, except that the MR Egger result was not significant, but the inverse weighted analysis was. So those of you who are statistics gurus might know more what that means. They also tried going the reverse. So does having psoriasis increase your risk of having obesity? And they discovered that it did not. So. They point out that this study has value as one of the initial successful examples of trans-ethnic Mendelian randomization analysis. And the upshot is that there's some kind of 
causality directional link between elevated BMI and an increased risk of psoriasis. So they posit that perhaps that means we can intervene on obesity directly to reduce somebody's risk of psoriasis rather than this being simply an association. Yeah, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, our fat is not an inert subject, a substance. It's really, it's an endocrine organ and it's a part of our endocrine system. And it produces a lot of cellular signals and a lot of pro-inflammatory mediators, one of them actually being TNF-alpha, which is why some people propose that people who have higher levels of adiposity might require higher doses of TNF-alpha inhibitors to achieve higher levels of clearance with the anti-TNF agents. So um, I think that you know the role of obesity and psoriasis are very deeply intertwined with each other, both of them kind of driving themselves off of pro-inflammatory uh, mediators circulating in the blood. And you know I think that you know public awareness of that is always a beneficial thing. I think it's interesting to find that the reverse wasn't true because we've often, I think, had discussions where we sort of blamed the ostracization of people who have significant areas of plaque psoriasis with avoidance of activities that might expose them to the public eye, such as physical exercise, going to the gym, that kind of thing, and possibly having a you know chicken and egg situation with psoriasis and obesity. That's fair. That's all from this article. I thought it was interesting that they could use that amount of data and genetic stuff in order to figure this out. And... I always think that when you're reading some of these association articles, it's easy even for those of us who are educated to kind of somehow shortcut it into feeling like one causes the other rather than just being associated. So I guess it's nice to see that something really is causative, assuming you believe this M.R. Egger analysis subtype. Well, you know, you would think that if obesity is, you know, positively causative of psoriasis, then possibly modifying diet might potentially protect against psoriasis. So another study group uh, in the JAD from June of 2019 published a study on inflammatory diet, uh, inflammatory dietary pattern and incident psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and atopic dermatitis in women, a cohort study. The authors of this included Elena Bridgman, which is a master's of science, um, person and then Aaron M. Drucker, MD. And there were diverse sites that were involved, including places in Canada, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Ohio. And they utilized the nurses health study number two. So they utilized a large database uh, to sort of trace whether or not diet might be as a modulator of inflammation, something that would impact inflammatory skin diseases. They utilized a measure uh, that was kind of an interesting one I hadn't become familiar with before called the Empirical Dietary Inflammatory Pattern, the EDIP, which is a recently developed and validated measure. And basically diets with a high EDIP score is associated with higher levels of TNF-alpha and its receptors, as well as CRP, IL-6, and adiponectin. Adiponectin being something produced in the adipose tissue that modulates glucose metabolism and is pro-inflammatory. So EDIP, high EDIP scores mean you're have a your that food is pro-inflammatory. Exactly. So it's like golf. You want a lower score. So the EDIP is the weighted score of 18 food groups. Lower scores indicate diets that are maximally anti-inflammatory. Higher scores indicate diets that are maximally pro-inflammatory. I feel like I'm surprised my patients haven't come to me saying, well, I changed my kid's diet to a low EDIP, but he still has eczema. <laughs> well, you know, table that for now because it might not be that helpful. Um, table, so the I get it because it's food. <laughs> I like it. So the pro-inflammatory things that might be on your table um, include processed meat, red meat, organ meat, white fish, which was a surprise to me, vegetables other than leafy green vegetables and dark yellow vegetables, refined grains, high energy beverages such as cola and other carbonated beverages with sugar and fruit drinks, low energy beverages such as low energy cola and other low energy carbonated beverages so your Diet Coke doesn't get you off the hook here, and tomatoes, tomatoes I think being pro-inflammatory because they're nightshade vegetables and some people are a little bit sensitive to them. Also, I just wanted to say the word nightshade, it's fun to say. Anti-inflammatory foods included, interestingly, beer, wine, tea, coffee, 
dark yellow vegetables, green leafy vegetables, snacks, i.e. popcorn and crackers, which I thought that was surprising. That might be correlated with overall lower caloric intake, perhaps. Fruit juice and pizza was the interesting one. And I, I feel like I was, I was excited that they actually undertook an explanation of why pizza was included in the lower inflammatory group. Um, anti-inflammatory. Exactly, in the anti-inflammatory group. The reasoning being that lycopene was two to five times higher in concentration in cooked tomato paste than in tomatoes, and that pizza also typically contains large amounts of high-fat dairy, which has anti-inflammatory and low-insulinemic properties. So the way that they did this study was that they looked into this nurse's health study and they calculated the EDIP score at baseline in every four years. Then incident psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and atopic dermatitis were validated by self-report. How did they know what these people ate? Uh, self-reported. This nurse's health study actually involves a lot of data gathering. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty good, pretty robust database of relatively young female patients. So I think that they were able to, to gather kind of a lot of information on it. it. The NHS, the Nurses' Health Study 2, it's a large prospective cohort study that started in 1989. And it involves 116,430 U.S. female nurses between the ages of 25 to 42. They gather risk factor data and disease factors and information about diet um, by questionnaire twice a year. And so they were able to make these calculations based off of that. And they wanted to look at, you know, psoriasis and atopic dermatitis because they're relatively common chronic immune-mediated inflammatory skin conditions. Uh, it's been noted in the literature, as you mentioned earlier, that obesity and other things such as smoking and stress can modulate risk, severity, and prognosis of these inflammatory conditions. And diet is a modifying factor that can be controlled. Recent meta-analyses have highlighted the benefit um, in the anti-inflammatory realm of Mediterranean diets, as they may decrease circulating CRP, IL-6, and adiponectin, and a higher EDIP score was conversely correlated with producing higher levels of those same inflammatory mediators. So they were hoping that if they stratified the people who were enrolled in this nurse's health study by their diet, they could see a protective effect against some of these inflammatory conditions based upon their eating patterns. Right. If they ate cans of tomato paste, hopefully they were less likely to get psoriasis. <laughs> you sit around indoors not wearing sunscreen eating cans of tomato paste, you're all... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so what they did after that was they actually divided the patients into quintiles based off of their EDIP. So they put the lowest EDIP at one side of the scale and the highest EDIP at the other side of the scale. And what they kind of thought they might see was that patients with the lowest EDIP, remember it's like golf and you want the lowest score for maximal anti-inflammatory benefit, they hoped that they would see lower rates of psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, or atopic dermatitis in this lowest quintile. They did not see that. In fact, they pretty much had identical rates across all five quintiles, which was interesting to me. Other things were measured across quintiles, and some things that I noticed was that current smoking and white race were more common in the lowest quintile of the EDIP. Um, I thought that was intriguing. I wondered if it wasn't because beer, wine, and coffee were part of that low inflammatory group of the EDIP, which would lower your score. And a lot of people imbibe beer or alcohol and smoke at the same time. I don't know if that might have had a, a you know, connection there. Um, so with those beverages being part of the lower inflammatory group, uh, current smoking being part of the lowest quintile with a you know, higher prevalence of smoking by quite a little bit, I don't know if the increase in systemic inflammation from that exposure might wash some of the benefit from having that lowest quintile of the EDIP. Conversely, and kind of not unexpectedly, hypercholesterolemia was more common in the fifth quintile, the highest quintile, as were you know, a higher BMI and caloric intake, lower physical activity, and lower alcohol consumption. So there were some you know, more pro-inflammatory things additionally happening in that fifth quintile sort of things you might associate with having a more pro-inflammatory diet. But they were not able to find an association between a pro-inflammatory diet and incident psoriasis in the age-adjusted or multivariate adjusted models. In psoriatic arthritis, they got a little signal 
of a direct association between a high EDIP score uh, and psoriatic arthritis in the age-adjusted analysis, but it wasn't, it wasn't significant in the multivariate model. And when they stratified by BMI, that trend became even less significant. So as one would expect, psoriatic arthritis is more severe in patients who have a higher BMI. So the take-home message from utilizing this particular measurement was that the pro-inflammatory diet, as defined by the EDIP, did not seem to produce higher rates of psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and atopic dermatitis. I think that, you know, having alcohol in the lower inflammatory group might be a bit of a confounding factor because other studies have shown that higher levels of alcohol consumption may push psoriasis incidence and severity. And so you're kind of removing some of the anti-inflammatory benefit of the good foods that are a part of that group. But I did think that it was an interesting study. Being a sort of granola person that likes to recommend lifestyle modification to my patients with inflammatory conditions, I was hoping that this would show that, yes, of course, if you eat foods that are, you know, known to lower inflammation, that you'll have an improved disease state. But that did not show up in this article. Well, I'm happy because I don't want to recommend those things. <laughs> I feel like... Eat lots of pizza and drink lots of beer. People always are like... Oh my, um, this happens in pediatric dermatology. They want to change their diet in order to make their eczema better. And it just doesn't work, at least for the vast majority of children. Where I did my fellowship, the MAs used to joke that they wanted t-shirts that said, hashtag, it's not your food. <laughs> it was in Oregon, so there was probably more of that going around. Um, but mostly what this study did was validate my own personal life choices on subsisting on coffee, pizza, and wine for the most part. <laughs> Also, one of the things that I noticed that they didn't really comment on was that they had about 1,400 cases of psoriasis and 260 cases of psoriatic arthritis. So that's 5% of people with psoriasis got psoriatic arthritis, which is a lot lower than some of the other numbers that I've seen quoted. I've seen 15%. I've even seen 30%, like on the National Psoriasis Foundation website. 5% um, is a lot less. Maybe the other people with psoriasis just haven't had time to get psoriatic arthritis yet, or maybe it's because all these people are women, or who knows. But um, it's just interesting to me that a lot of the statistics that I go around sort of thinking are true, like, where do those come from? How do I know that's true? This study says 5%. Another one says 30%. The truth is out there, but only Mulder and Scully know where it is. <laughs> I like that. All right, moving on. I'm going to talk about methotrexate, methotrexate and test doses. So this is a study out of um, the JAD. This is a research letter from April 2019. This was a group of folks from the Southern University School of Medicine. The authors are Thomas Herrmann, Michael Bunner Kempe, sorry, Michael, I mispronounced your name, and Morgan Wilson. And the title is Initiation of Methotrexate with or Without a Test Dose, a Retrospective Toxicity Study. So I've heard other people talk about test doses for methotrexate before and how, yeah, I used to do it, but I don't anymore. Or sometimes I do it when I kind of feel like it, when I get some kind of vibe from the patient or something like that. And I would imagine most of our listeners know what a test dose is. You just give them a little bit of methotrexate, like 5 or 7.5 milligrams, and then you check blood work like five days later or something just to make sure that I guess there's something about their metabolism that isn't going to throw them into some kind of awful crisis with methotrexate. So these guys did a retrospective review from 2010 to 2015 um, from their institution of 174 patients who are on methotrexate. These were rheumatology patients or they were dermatology patients. Um, and the upshot is basically that the test dose didn't help anything. So you don't have to do test doses anymore. But to get more into it, um, most of these patients were on methotrexate for either psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis. Most dermatology patients had a test dose, and most rheumatology patients did not. In fact, out of the 96 rheumatology patients on methotrexate, only two of them had a test dose. So maybe the rheumatologists know something we don't. Whereas in the dermatologists, it was about two-thirds of patients did get a test dose. The way they, they checked labs... Um, to make sure that these test doses weren't helping or people weren't otherwise getting methotrexate toxicity. They looked at hemoglobin, white blood cell count, ANC, platelets, and ALT, and discovered um, that there were no deaths or hospitalizations attributed to methotrexate toxicity. 
if you got a test dose, there were no new severe abnormalities. And there, out of all these people, a test dose only prompted a single management change, which was they didn't go ahead with methotrexate. But the issue was that that patient had a mild ALT elevation of uncertain etiology. Um, I probably would have just rechecked. And then, as we probably already know, most people in this group stopped methotrexate due to GI issues if they stopped it at all. And the incidence of methotrexate discontinuation, any cause, end of grade two laboratory abnormalities during the first four months of treatment didn't differ according to the test dose use or size of the initial dose. So, um, don't do methotrexate test doses, I guess. They also point out the data from clinical trials suggest that initiation of methotrexate at doses of 15 to 7.5 milligrams per week associated with a low risk of serious adverse effects. This is good news because I'm lazy. I don't want to do test doses. And now I know I don't have to. What's your practice, Michelle? Do you like test yeah. doses? You know, um, I, I do test doses for another reason. So. I have found that test doses are a good way to weed out people that have trouble kind of complying with the very specific instructions you have to give them when they're using methotrexate. Uh, I think that it's helpful to reiterate the once a week dosing and the fact that it can be a medicine that you have to respect in terms of its ability to be a little bit more risky if it gets too high, too high of a dose. Um, another thing I think that's really important once you do release patients for less frequent follow-up is to emphasize things that might change the metabolism of the methotrexate. So I give them a list of drugs that can impair the filtration of the methotrexate out of their body. I also talk to them about, about conditions that would impact how the methotrexate gets cleared. Specifically, you know, if you go see another doctor and they tell you you've developed chronic kidney disease or renal failure or you know, you have trouble with your creatinine being too high. You need to stop the methotrexate and call me so that we don't get accumulation problems. Um, so I find that it's kind of helpful in creating the sort of level of respect and understanding in the patient that the medicine can be a very good and safe medicine when used properly, but there is some risk to using it. It has to be done in a thoughtful way. I think that, you know, for patients that you kind of gauge or, or quite, you know, understanding of the necessity to be cautious with the medicine and that, you know, live far away and that the, you know, short-term follow-up is inconvenient for, you could certainly consider being a little bit more generous with those people following up at a regular normal interval. But I kind of like my test doses just because it helps me weed out the ones that are going to misbehave. Well, do you test dose other heavy-duty medicines then? <laughs> You know, I think we, we have short follow-ups for the medications that I think are, are more um, risky to use in the beginning. And then once we get sort of a bellwether for how the patient's going to behave on the medication, I think that we're able to, you know, individually spread out the follow-up intervals. But, you know, I think that some people are very trustworthy on a long leash and other people you need to see uh, on more regular basis just because their level of medical literacy might be a little bit lower. More of this treating patients as individuals kind of stuff for me, Michelle. <laughs> you are <laughs> granola. I'm a crunchy granola girl. All right. Well, let's talk about CCCA. Yes. So this is a very interesting article to me. Um, I had the great privilege of studying under Dr. Wilma Bergfeld in my residency. So I saw a lot of patients affected by this condition in residency, and I continue to see a lot of patients in my practice affected by scarring alopecias. And so this was a really interesting study in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2019. And the title of the article is Variant PADI 3PADI3 in Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia. The chief authors are Liren Malachi, who is a master's of science, and Eli Schrecker, I'm saying in the German way, it might be Spreacher, I'm not sure, um, who is an MD-PhD. And I also read here that the second author, Ofer Sarig, contributed equally to the article. Ah, uh, yes, very nice. So we want to give them an equal shout out. Thank you for that. Um, so they have some nice background here about how CCCA is the most common form of scarring alopecia that affects patients of African ancestry. And, you know, it is possibly triggered by hair grooming habits, although that is controversial whether or not it's hair grooming habits or if that's just something that the condition has been blamed on. Um, that has been suggested, though, as an explanation for its preponderance among women. 
And under histopathology, you see varying degrees of lymphocytic inflammatory infiltrate, follicular degeneration, and fibrosis. Some people feel that it's just a variant of lichen planopilaris occurring in patients of color. Uh, there are some similarities. They tend to affect the same portion of the hair follicle, of course, the upper portion with it being a scarring alopecia. It's more common than I wish that it was, uh, affecting between 2.7 and 5.6% of women of African ancestry. And I feel like it's probably somewhat underreported because a fair number of patients in this group will wear hair pieces to cover the scalp if there's significant hair loss. And it may occur in families and has been proposed as possibly an autosomal dominant trait. So they asked the question, is there a genetic basis for CCCA? So they used what they called a discovery set, which were 16 patients that had the condition and did exome sequencing then compared those results with those in a public repository of people with similar background genetic characteristics. The patients were recruited from Durban, South Africa and Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then they applied other filtering criteria to try to identify some candidate genes. So they wanted to find candidate genes that had variants that were inherited in a dominant fashion. They wanted a minor allele frequency of less than 0.05 in persons of African descent and less than 0.0001 in persons of European descent. They wanted a gene that would have predicted pathogenicity, something that if something went wrong with it, it would have some disastrous consequence to hair follicle or hair shaft health. And they wanted to have the presence of the candidate gene in variants in multiple patients. So they used direct sequencing to identify disease-associated DNA variations, along with RNA sequencing, protein modeling, immunofluorescent staining, immunoblotting, and enzyme assay. All I heard was that they used science. They used science. They used a lot of, they scienced a lot in this article. So much sciencing going on here. (laughs) After they were able to identify the possibility of this PADI3 gene, they then used a replication set to confirm the data obtained in the discovery set. More science. More science. Um, So in the discovery set, they found one splice site and three heterozygous missense mutations in the PADI3 gene in five patients. So that was 31% of their discovery set. And PADI3 encodes peptidyl arginine deaminase deaminase, type 3, which is an enzyme that post-translationally modifies other proteins that are essential for hair shaft formulation. And I think it was interesting that all of the missense mutations that they identified occurred in highly conserved residues that were predicted to be pathogenic and that protein modeling suggested would result in protein misfolding. So when they studied these things, they found out that the mutations re- resulted in reduced PADI3 expression, abnormal intracellular localization of the protein and decreased enzyme activity. They also, through immunofluorescence studies, showed decreased expression of PADI3 in biopsy samples of the scalp skin from patients with CCCA. And then they directly sequenced the PADI3 gene in the additional replication set of 42 additional patients and observed the variant in nine more of these patients, so 21% of that replication set. So it seems legit. It seems kind of legit. So um, the combined data set showed that the prevalence of PADI3 mutations was higher among patients with CCCA than a control cohort of women with African ancestry. And this is a good candidate gene because mutations in PADI3 have also been identified in patients with uncombable hair syndrome. It's a, a different, different type mutation, of mutation. Yeah. yeah, a different type of mutation, but another hair shaft abnormality from a similar, um, from a mutation in the same particular gene. So it's kind of an interesting gene. It's detected mainly in the epidermis and hair follicles. As I said, it's been detected abnormally in patients who have uncombable hair syndrome. And that expression of the gene was markedly lower in patients with CCCA than normal controls. Then they scienced some more. So they decided to further investigate the consequence of the CCCA-associated missense mutations in PADI3 with a human keratinocyte cell line called HACAT, H-A-C-A-T. So they transiently transfected these cells with constructs encoding a non-variant and then the mutated PADI3. They did immunoblotting of the cell extracts, and they showed that expression of all three of the mutant PADI3s that they'd identified earlier, so all the missense mutations, were actually lower expression, resulted in lower expression than the non-variant construct. So it had consequences in the human cell culture line when they transfected those abnormal missense mutations 
into the keratinocyte cells. I'm so, convinced. I, I you, wait. There's more. Oh, so, yeah. I don't need any more. <laughs> <laughs> so they also uh, examined the effect of the mutations on subcellular location of the enzyme, and they did that through immunofluorescence analysis. Uh, so typically, you would have homogeneous cytoplasmic distribution of PADI3 in cells with a non-mutated variant of the gene. Cells that were transfected with one of the mutated variants had abnormal intracellular localization of the protein with formation of aggregates that were non-functional in the cytoplasm. So one more bit of science. They then assayed the enzymatic activity associated with the three mutant constructs compared with the non-variant PADI3. And we're were uh, again noting that a construct with a mutation in the same gene had been previously associated with uncombable hair. That was a positive control in this particular study. So they found that there was a significant de decrease in enzymatic activity on transfection of the four constructs into the HACAT cells, those keratinocyte cells, compared with the ones transfected with the normal non-mutated variant. So, so loss of function, yeah. The upshot, I guess, is that like a quarter of patients, at least in their samples, with CCCA have a mutation in PADI3, mm -hmm. and they did all of this stuff to show that that's likely like causative of why they have the CCCA condition. They didn't go so far to, I think, say that it was causative, but more that it created kind of a vulnerability. Okay. And that, that it was associated with deleterious variants of this PADI3. And the article was followed by a very nice commentary uh, with genetic susceptibility to alopecia that went over some of the different types of alopecias that affect the you know, human condition, some of which are single cell, sorry, single gene mutations. And they talked about the you know, significance of CCCA. Uh, to patients uh, who are usually young to middle-aged women, and then they discussed a little bit how the study was done. I think the best part of the commentary actually are the figures included, because they have some nice both, both figural and photographic representations of normal hair, a patient with CCCA who, you know, they demonstrate their hypothesis of how the decreased PADI3 expression might cause pathogenic changes in the hair shaft with reduced expression of genes and hair shaft formation and structure and then fibrosis. And then they also include a, art, a little figure about uncombable hair syndrome and how the homozygous mutations in PADI3 in that condition can cause altered post-translational modification of trichohyalin and early onset of frizzy uncombable hair. And I think it's a very nice visual uh, descriptor of the you know differences between those different syndromes. They also propose that if a patient is identified with this pathogenic variant, that that patient and possibly uh, female family members should be counseled against using any of the you know hair straightening procedures that might possibly predispose them to developing the condition. They, I think that it's a, a very interesting candidate for possibly one of the reasons why people might be susceptible to this condition. Certainly it's not the total answer. I think with most of these conditions, there's multifactorial inheritance and environmental factors that trigger them. But I think that the way they approached the science was very sound and very intelligent. Uh, I think that they used a pretty nice targeted approach to try to find their candidate genes. And also the figures that were included in the original article are very nice to look at. So I think that this was kind of an interesting piece of science. <laughs> Seems like a potential test question if we've got any like residents who are listening, probably not this upcoming board section, but who knows after that. PADI3 mutations associated with CCCA. Peptidyl arginine deaminase type 3. Thank you. Yes, they might call it that. Um, and I think that this business of um, like how is this practically helpful? The potential of it being autosomally dominantly inherited and presumably other genes that they have yet to discover maybe also being inherited that way does give you something you can do in the clinic. If you have somebody with this condition, you can say, well, you know, we know at least one gene's associated with this. So your female family members might be at risk as well. So you might caution them about, you know, some of the hairstyling practices I'm about to tell you about. Maybe you could save some people from alopecia that way. That would be helpful. Well, and I think in, in our modern world where, you know, we're sort of dipping our toes in, in the twilight zone with genetics, 
you know, the, the spit in the tube tests are starting to check some things that are genes that tend to predispose people to early pattern alopecia. There are ones that check for, you know, prevalence or, or likelihood of developing thyroid disease. You know, I could foresee a future in which someone develops one of those spit in the tube tests for this, uh, where people are able to maybe assess their baseline risk before they decide to you know, go get the hair straightened or something like that. I'm still, the jury, in my opinion, is still out on whether or not hair care practices really do cause um, CCCA or whether it's one of those things where when LPP happens in a person who's Caucasian, we say, oh, you poor thing, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And when it happens in a person, a similar process, an inflammatory alopecia happens in a person of color, we say, what did you do? You know, so I feel like there may be some inherent bias in how we interpret this, but it's it is something I think we need to, you know, do everything we can to protect people from developing if we if we have some counseling that can be beneficial for them because it can be so detrimental to people's well being. How do you counsel your patients with CCCA? I tell them to be as gentle as possible with their scalp and their hair. Uh, we have a discussion that we don't really one hundred percent know what causes this, but we do know that at this point your scalp is inflamed and your hair follicles are under attack by your immune system. And so everything that you can do to be gentle to your scalp and to give you know, good circulation, to improve stress, to decrease any kind of exposures to things that are not healthful for your body are a good idea. Is that how you counsel people with LPP or FFA as well? So I also have those patients avoid harsh bleaches and perms and things along those lines. All right. All right. Well, that's what we got for our listeners today. Thanks so much for listening to episode three of Dermosphere. If you would like to listen to episodes one or two, um, you can go to dermospherepodcast.com where you can also learn some more about me and Michelle and you can send us some messages and stuff. I want to give a big shout out to the University of Utah Department of Dermatology for supporting this podcast. And I want to give a shout out to Texas Tech Health Sciences Center Department of Dermatology for lending us Michelle for the podcasts. I've started to look at some articles for next time. So our next episode, you guys can look forward to learning about Mohs for melanoma and learning about mustaches. Ooh, I'm now I'm intrigued. I couldn't wait until Mustache Movember, so it'll be Mustache Moon for our next episode. All right, guys. See you next time.